Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Play bells ring. Are you listening? Whoa, listen to this. A little rock music on Christmas. The Ronettes. I couldn't remember that. What a fabulous song. Oh my gosh. How good is that? How good is that? Great. Fabulous. It even mentions, I think it mentions Christmas in there. Imagine that. Politically incorrect, mentioning Christmas. Oh, my gosh. Anyway, we'll try to find a couple others. The Ronettes, my God, the Ronettes. How old, how wonderful is that? Anyway, I want to go and talk about Christmas here. 2022, about to become 2023. We're going to bring in a good friend of mine, Robert, uh, Dr. Robert Redfield, who was the former CDC Director, He's a uh, virologist and medical researcher on his own. He was responsible for the executive order originally for putting um, Title 42 in the first place. Title 42 of the Public Health Service Act, which authorized the director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to suspend entry of individuals into the United States to protect public health. And it was invoked by... Dr. Redfield, in early 2020 because of the emerging COVID pandemic. First of all, Bob Redfield, Merry Christmas. Thanks for doing this. We appreciate it. Glad to be here, Larry. So I um, the thing you put in with Mark Siegel, the op-ed piece in the New York Post, was an eye-opener because of the very simple, direct, but terribly important point that Title 42 must be upheld for public health reasons, not politics, not even immigration policy, but public health reasons. And you say that, you say, um, not just the emerging COVID pandemic and influenza transmission at the border, you didn't know it was going to block 2 million crossings, et cetera, et cetera. But you say there are health risks to the immigrants and to the guards. It was impossible for the detention centers to comply with CDC-recommended social distancing and mitigation. And then you also say, um, even now, you've got high rates of flu, COVID, injuries while crossing, dehydration, diarrheal uh, diseases from a lack of potable water, not to mention, again, the terrible health and emotional risk. This is a public health reason. And if we don't have uh, anything to replace it with, then we'll be throwing public health out the window. That's where I'm reading from you. Yeah, Larry, I think that, I think it's an important uh, point to emphasize. When I originally uh, signed the Title 42, although I obviously got substantial criticism 
from individuals that tried to make it that it was an immigration decision. It never was. It was a public health decision. And uh, first and foremost, uh, from a humanitarian perspective, to protect the public health of the immigrants, they were being uh, detained in facilities that uh, were meant for a limited number of people, and they were being packed in there. And we were seeing significant transmission, both of COVID and flu. Uh, and again, the, you know, that was spilled over into the guards. And uh, so we felt it was really important uh, to uh, uh, not facilitate that. Uh, and if we didn't have the ability to uh, process these individuals in a safe and responsible way, then we should uh, return them uh, uh, and not put them at risk to develop uh, uh, particularly COVID and flu, which are the dominant illnesses that were potentially life-threatening that were occurring at the border at the time. So really, um, when you look at this story now, I don't know how this is going to turn out. It's um, at least temporarily in the hands of the Supreme Court. Uh, Legislation is possible, although nothing got through in this um, omnibus bill. But one of your key points here, the immigrants coming through, the illegal immigrants coming through are risked uh, a public health risk to uh, people in the United States. But you're also saying uh, they are an enormous public health risk to the immigrants themselves, that this Correct. is a humanitarian issue. This is a health issue. We're not helping them by letting them in. And now even more, you can see uh, uh, that what's occurred is obviously they've moved away from any kind of detainment with sort of the catch and release. But what's happening is these immigrants now that are then being, you know, uh, transported in, 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 in crowded conjugate settings only to go into a number of our major cities, only then to be integrated into the homeless population on the streets. Mm. So this, this is not a way to try to maximize prevention and containment of really, as you see right now, two major circulating pathogens that we have, COVID and flu, which are causing significant, uh, you know, illness in the American public. Uh, But again, realizing probably the most vulnerable population that we have in the nation, and sadly we have a large one, is the homeless population. Mm -hmm. And now we're just just adding to that. Uh, And so I don't think this is a humane humane approach. I mean, I did get a lot of criticism. Uh, CDC internal people did not support my decision, although this is a decision of the CDC director. And I did make that decision. I would like the current CDC director to continue it. I do believe it's really driven by public health and not to let the critics convince you that, no, 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 this is public health. You're doing this as, you know, to get around immigration policy or you're doing it for this reason. No. I did it for public health. If I was in the position today, I'd do it again for public health at Mm. this point, because I do think it's still a major, major public health issue. We're talking to uh, Dr. Robert Redfield, former CDC director. Um, In in public health circles, Bob Redfield, what is there discussion about what would replace it uh, if Title 42 expires? Again, to your point, that this is not a political issue, this is a public health issue. Is public health issue for people who are already here, and it's a public health issue for the uh, people crossing illegally. What's going to replace it, or what should replace it, in your judgment? 
Yeah, unfortunately, I don't think there's, I mean, it's almost if there's a narrative among the established public health community that you can't be for Title 42 because somehow it's viewed as anti-immigration mm. or anti. And, and, and so, you know, I had, you know, really plans. I like the uh, President Trump's uh, Remain in Mexico plan. We felt we could then vaccinate people against flu and COVID while they're waiting to cross the border. We could improve their immunity. You know, we could process people in an organized uh, legal fashion to try to minimize uh, inappropriate crowding. Uh, I really don't think they're they're thinking this through at all. I mean, just the mere fact that you see literally, literally thousands of people being put into these cities with no, you know, long-term shelter, no path to employment. What you're just doing is adding to uh, a whole uh, new population of homelessness. And homelessness is really another major public health problem in our country right now. Mm. And we're just adding to it without thinking this through. You write in this article, too, uh, the spread of fentanyl and other illegal opioids across our southern border isn't covered under Title 42. But were it to expire, we would expect drug trafficking to increase along with the massive influx of more illegal immigrants. So adding to all these other issues uh, of COVID and influenza uh, and so forth, dehydration, you're talking about diarrheal diseases, we got ourselves a major league drug problem, which has been highlighted, but I don't know that it's been incorporated properly into the discussion of Title 42. Yeah, and I think in general... You know, um, when I started at CDC in, in, in 2018, my first epidemic that I was asked to lead the agency was, of course, drug use disorder. I had 80,000 deaths that year. Mm. You know, CDC just announced we had 107,000 mm. individuals die uh, in the year that we just completed. Uh, it's an enormous loss of human life. And uh, when you ask me about what are they going to do with, uh, after Title 42 to protect the public health, and I said, I really don't think they thought this through. It's also just very clear. We haven't thought through a, very, a meaningfully, meaningful, effective uh, uh, approach towards trying to limit uh, fentanyl in our, in, our, in, our, in our nation. I almost lost one of my children from cocaine contaminated with fentanyl. Mm. personal to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's an embarrassment uh, mm. to me. The, the way we just sort of record the numbers. And, you know, there's a lot of things we could do to limit uh, fentanyl in the United States. They're significant. They'll be inconvenient. But, you know, I remind people that we lost about 53,000, 57,000 lives in Vietnam from 1950 to 1970s. Mm. And we're losing 100,000 people last mm. year, young mm. people under the age of 45. Uh, so it's another huge problem. It's just totally exacerbated by our lack of an effective uh, program for the border. My role as CDC director, though, was to look at it, is there, you know, is there something from a public health perspective? And, you know, I stand by it. I still get criticized, obviously, by my colleagues on this decision. But I stood by it then. I stand by it now that it was a decision to protect the public health. And I remind people, like you pointed out, first and foremost, the public health of the illegal immigrants. Yes. Yes. That is a key point. That is what... I won't say that's the only thing, but that's one of the things that drew my attention 
uh, to your New York Post article uh, with uh, Siegel. I mean, uh, that that's we're not doing them any favors, Bob Redfield. That's the thing. And I don't, you know, just quickly, I mean, we're always running out of time. But the fact is, you don't hear much discussion about drugs anymore. It's too bad. I mean, you hear a lot of criticisms about it, and figures are cited, such as you have on this show, uh, the devastation of it, the the growth of it. I know there's a demand side issue here. Look, you're talking to somebody who's 27 years clean and sober, uh, and, you know, with God's help, that has worked out well for me. Um, you had a family problem, too. Millions and millions and millions of people have had family problems. But on the supply side of the drug thing or the demand side, we just don't hear hardly anything, Bob Redfield, about dealing with the emerging drug problem. Yeah, and I think we don't have a serious, uh, you know, effort to try to limit it. I mean, if we really wanted to, you can't control fentanyl coming in the country if you're going to search one out of every hundred cars mm. or one out of every 20 trucks. Mm. You know, my, my own view is, you know, we need to take a much more serious approach to this stripping away the lives of so many people. Mm. Not only did I mention the 100,000 plus lives that were lost last year, each of those lives that were lost affected many other lives. All right. And, I just personally think we need to go all in in terms of if it means taking, you know, you know, you may not like this answer, but if it means it's going to take us 90 days for cargo to go across the border. We're going to search everything. We're not right. going to let stuff come in. And and those companies that are caught with uh, drugs, we're going to ban them from importing for a year. We're going to be big, big penalties. We have to be serious about it. You know, when I was CDC director, you know, probably the most important um, method by which uh, illegal drugs came into our country when I first started looking at it was UPS. Wow. So we don't have a serious approach. And this could be escalated. To, and I think the American public. Uh, I, I, I really do believe many of the American public, if you step back, I know it, it hit my family and I got to share it with other families. I'd go to gatherings where no one would talk about uh, drug use or anything or drug use disorder. And by the end of the night, 70 percent of the families would be talking about it wow. because they had a they had a family member or they lost somebody, yeah. you know, drug overdose. It's such a huge problem and when you think about it where our nation used you know really used to lose uh, uh the potential of its youth those of us that served in the military and went into combat it was through war mm. right? and i mentioned vietnam 53 yeah. 57 000 people yeah. we're losing a hundred thousand young people a year now yep yeah. uh dr robert redfield my friend, I served on the task for health task force with him, the COVID task force. Thank you for this. More to be revealed, and we will talk soon. Merry Christmas. Happy yeah. New Year to you and your family. Folks, we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to talk to John Tamney about a new book. Um, I believe John is going to tell us that cryptocurrencies really can work if we let them. Anyway, I'm Larry Kudlow. We'll take a short break. The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to talk to my good friend, John Tamney, who's vice president of FreedomWorks, and he's the editor of uh, Real Clear Markets. He has been for a long time. Uh, John's got a new book out. It's called The Money Confusion, 
how illiteracy about currencies and inflation set the stage for the crypto revolution. John, I have not read the book. All I know is what you wrote to me, that you're going to defend the crypto revolution, which is fine. And by the way, you're not the only one. I mean, <laughs> this jerk, uh, whatever his name is, SBF, should not ruin what should be a pretty uh, important medium of exchange uh, and perhaps a store of value. Anyway, uh, in your usual concise manner, what are you telling us in this new book? Well, I'm telling at beginning and end that immense failure, carnage, collapse, that's the norm for any industry that's going to have a big impact. Uh, you look back to cars over 100 years ago, thousands of car makers went up, went up in smoke, uh, tons of fraudsters in their midst. You look at the Internet. That's when I first came to know, or know you better. Uh, the Internet was a r remarkable change in commerce, but as we know, lots of the, the vast majority of those businesses went up in smoke. The fact that this is happening now in crypto is the surest sign that market actors are going to happen on money that's trusted and that's going to make government money better, but also just make it better in general for, pe for people to transact because they can believe in the currency they're using. You know, um, Tomas Philipson, I don't know if you know Tomas Philipson, former chair of the uh, Council of Economic Advisors, and he's a free market guy. And he was saying to me on the TV show that um, cryptocurrencies, you know, not not this uh, crook and so forth, uh, uh, Bankman Freed, but cryptocurrencies are a legitimate medium of exchange and that one bad apple should not destroy that whole thought or the advances in technology with respect to uh, blockchain. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I refer to crypto as private money. Yeah. Uh, why, why would private money be better than government money? Government's got a history going back thousands and thousands of years of always devaluing the money that it issues. Uh, private actors would have an incentive to keep uh, the money honest and stable. And the point I make in the book is a capitalist system that, that can build buildings that go a mile into the sky and put supercomputers in our pockets can certainly create trusted measures. More important, the capitalist system demands trusted measures because everything we do is about exchanging products for products, dividing up work. If you throw trusted money into the mix, our potential for growth will make the present look positively destitute, <laughs> deprived by comparison. So competition matters. Currency competition matters. So the best way to trusted money is let's have a competitive system. Yes, yes, as with anything else. And, and, and let's be clear. What, what did Jeff Bezos say long ago? Your margin's my opportunity. Well, as our good friend George Gilder frequently points out, there's, what, $7 trillion in daily currency trading? Mm -hmm. That is a huge margin that capitalism is going to wipe out. Before money floated, there weren't currency markets. And so some there will be capitalists that come along that create money that gradually replaces that which floats around. And so in the process, you wipe away a margin that is way too big, and you also give the most productive, innovative people on earth a currency that enables a division of labor on a level that we've never seen before. I mean, I, it just staggers me that people could be pessimistic at a time when we're seeing an industry sprout that's going to get money right. By the way, doesn't Elon Musk agree with you? Uh, he not only agrees, but I, I predict in the book he hadn't purchased when I was writing the book 
Twitter yet, but he was in the process of it. I, I said that he's not buying Twitter to give me free speech rights. Let's be serious. Twitter is his crypto uh, vehicle, and we've already seen that. He's already registered Twitter to go in that direction. Let's never forget that he got into this business, PayPal, because he said banks were hopelessly outdated. If people don't think he's not going in a, in a crypto route, as I point out in the book, he describes money as an information system. That's how you and I describe it. That's how George Gilder describes mm-hmm. it. He's going to innovate here next. Mark my words. No, no. And I I raise his name because I think he is the smartest guy in the room. I'm a big Elon Musk fan, and I suspect you're right about where he's going uh, on this. So how are we doing on honest money right now? What's your take? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know. Uh, aren't we lucky? Uh, the dollar at everywhere in the world is the currency of exchange. If you go to Pyongyang, Tehran, Caracas, uh, Havana, if you want to buy things, you better have dollars. So as Americans, we're lucky. But the rest of the world needs something better. And as we know from currency, all the currency trading, even the dollar isn't wholly trusted. And so we're lucky, but we can do much better. And a capitalist system, again, that that creates all this wonderment can clearly produce a, a measure that we want. And that's what the book's about. It's just saying that this is inevitable. And it's not because the government's going to do it. It's inevitable because the capitalist system requires it. That's something that Keynes understood. That's something that Mises, all the great thinkers from the various uh, economic religions understood. What do you think about the Federal Reserve's idea that they're going to create a digital currency, a digital dollar? Oh, please. Uh, wait, so, so, so the, the very government that doesn't understand money is going to create a currency that, that the markets want? Governments have been devaluing money for as long as they've been involved in money. So the idea that they're going to create the currency that's going to beat other market actors just insults reason. And so I don't even know why people worry about it because it's not going to matter. What we're go- it's, This is going to be like Uber is my guess. You know how all of a sudden Uber just destroyed taxi cartels around the world, and, and by the time it did, politicians were too late to it. People had fallen in love. My sense is we're going to see something similar here, is that gradually it's going to be a slow process. The young are going to teach us how to use private money, and by the time government figures it out, it's going to be too late. The name of the book is The Money Confusion, How Illiteracy About Currencies and Inflation Set the Stage for the Crypto Revolution. The author is my pal John Tamney at FreedomWorks and Real Clear Markets. John, Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Thanks ever so much for this. Thank you so much. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick break, and on the other side, we're going to do some stock market work. That's right, stock market work. Will Christmas come early or not? I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. 